must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. And then verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on you while you are angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must no longer, must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. And then verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. And finally, follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And I'll just say on that last verse, I was looking at the J.B. Phillips translation this morning. I love this. He says, live your lives in love, the same sort of love which Christ gives us in sacrifice to God. Live your lives in love. I just love that invitation. This is God's word to us. Um, this morning, by way of introduction, I just wanted to tell you a, a climbing story. So some of you know I, I like to ride, I like to climb. I also ride bikes. But, and so I've been really interested in this story by... Uh, Tommy Caldwell this last year, he climbed the Don Wall up in Yosemite, was the first, uh, 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 successfully the first free climb, which is not like without ropes, it's the first unaided, like without aid climb of the Don Wall ever. And so on January 14th, he and this guy named Kevin Jorgensen completed the climb. Um, And it was over the course of 19 days that they, they scaled this it's like a 3,000 foot kind of granite. How many of you guys have been to Yosemite before and seen like El Capitan and the Don Wall? Like it's just amazing to look up at those rocks. And, and it's, just, it's this monolith of, of minimal crags and little handholds. Um, the kind of surface that would be really hard to imagine anybody climbing except for Spider-Man. Like it's amazing to watch people climbing this. And these two guys climbed it with just without any aid coming from above. Like a lot of aid climbers will use this, or there's that steel ladder that goes up the uh, El Capitan. They did it with just a rope to make sure when they fell, they didn't fall the way off. Um, But really, they just climbed it without falling on the rope. That's how they got this record. And so their climb was divided into 32 pitches, and a pitch is a section um, of each climb, 32 of those. And the most absurdly challenging pitch on this climb of the Don Wall is pitch 15, it's kind of known as the crux of the Don Wall. The crux of any climb is, is usually the pivotal or the most difficult section. So the most pivotal, the pivotal pitch, pitch 15, it's rated 514D, 
which in layman's terms is absurdly, ridiculously hard. <laughs> it's like impossible. And that gave Jorgensen especially the most difficulty. It took him 10 attempts over seven days to traverse this rock because he kept slicing his fingers on the, on the, the juts. Like they were like razor, razor blades. He just kept cutting his fingers and he couldn't grab onto them. So I wanted to show you a quick video of him describing that pitch. And then it's going to be a little washed out. But then um, Tommy Caldwell, who is the best climber in the world, um, actually climbing it. Just to give you a picture of kind of how this looks. This is about a three-minute video. The crux of pitch 15 has the sharpest holds on the entire route, for sure. And the crux is characterized by getting into a total iron cross position. I'm fully extended tip to tip as far as my wingspan goes. And from there, it takes 14 little micro hand and foot moves in order to get across that face. So there's a lot of opportunities to lose tension, to misstep a foothold, and it's some of the most precarious climbing I've ever done. Um, So I think that's what's making the red point of this pitch so challenging, is it's really just the character of that crux sequence. It's not just power, it's not just finger strength. You know, everything has to click and everything has to be done absolutely perfectly. And I'm just waiting for that perfect moment to come along. Makes you nervous just watching it, doesn't it? Uh, 
Whew. All right, so like, you know, I heard somebody say he's missing a finger. Yeah, he, cho- he actually chopped off his right index, his left index finger. In a, he was building a table uh, like 15 years ago and cut his finger off. They couldn't get it back on. Almost ruined his climbing career. But now he's climbing the hardest stuff in the world. I just like, wow. If you ever are curious about his story, he has a book called The Push that I read. It's his biography. Really good book. And then their, their movie is touring right now. Is it like Tell Your Ride and all these movie festivals? It's not in Seattle yet, but it'll be on iTunes sometime soon. They made a movie about this I haven't seen, but I'm really excited about seeing it. So why am I telling you about Caldwell, Jorgensen, the Don Wall, Crocs Moves? I think what does that have to do with Ephesians? And as you probably guessed, everything. <laughs> so um, at least to me. So in the last two chapters of Ephesians, um, which is really, it's the end of chapter four that we're looking at today, and then all of five and chapter six next week and, and the week after. We have two more weeks. Paul's presenting, just stay with me. I know this is going to be a little, a little cheesy, but the crux moves the letter. So in, in, uh, the, in the first three chapters of Ephesians thus far, Paul's been building this framework of sorts. And that is like, it's about the nature of who God is, as well as uh, God, like God's character, God's action in our lives, as well as what happens when we come into relationship with God. So who and what we become when we receive Christ. That's Ephesians 1 to 3 in a nutshell. So who's God? And then when, how, who we become in relationship to God. That's it. And, and that's what Paul's been doing. Trying to, he's been exuberantly exploring who God is and the way God works. And then the way we work in relationship to God. But now in chapters 4, 5, and 6, we did this a little bit last week. God, or Paul asks her, God's asking us, like, what does it mean to live the Christian life? Like, if God is, is really gracious, if God is really good, and then I'm, uh, I'm somebody who demonstrates God's graciousness and goodness. What does it mean? Like, how do I live out grace? How do I live out goodness? How do I live out the life of God when I go to Microsoft, when I go, you know, I parent my kids? How does that look? So how do you live is what Paul is asking us to consider in 4, 5, and 6. And so to that end, I don't know if you noticed, but in the passage I read, it's just loaded up with conjunctions. It's like that song, conjunction, junction, what's your function? So like in verse 17 of chapter 4, Paul says, so I, so I tell you. Literally, that's the Greek word, therefore. And then in verse 20, however. And then in verse 25, therefore. In 5.1, therefore. In 5.3, but. <laughs> Buts are really important. Therefore. 5.7, 5.8, but for. And then he goes on and on and on. It's just conjunction after conjunction after conjunction. And a quick word about these conjunctions. Uh, one of my favorite authors, Eugene Peterson, he has a little book on Ephesians called um, Resurrection Life. And um, he says this, sometimes a single word can mask itself in insignificance. And yet that very word serves as the pivot point for the more exciting words all around it. So Paul's therefores, we could add in however's, buts, thuses, mark the beginning of this transition at Ephesians 4 verse 1. The transition from the ways in which God creates and inhabits the church to the ways in which we now live appropriately as the church. Paul posts a second therefore in chapter 4 verse 17 to mark the completion of this transition. And that way, Paul's therefores keep us mindful of our connection to everything that's gone before. Remember, first, uh, chapters 1 to 3 is about who God is, who we are. So it's connecting us back to that. It's like a hyperlink. We are not on our own, is what Paul's saying. Therefore, we're not on our own. Church is not a job which we're given the responsibility of managing and adapting to whenever we see needs. Like when I express needs here on a Sunday, it's not your job. God's saying, hey, it's, it's who you are. You're made in God's image. You have an opportunity to live that out on Sundays, but also Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. 
So church, he says, uh, this is Peterson again, church is already complete in the words of the Nicene Creed. It's one holy Catholic apostolic. So to make sure we don't go off and do it our own way, Paul throughout chapters 4, 5, and 6 uses connecting conjunctions, therefores, to help keep our place and behavior in church organically joined to the one who calls us, God. To be sure, Peterson finishes, he says this, Paul uses the word therefore nine times in these sections. And when that, when that connection is maintained intact, the lives we live become representative of righteousness and holiness freshly created in us by the Holy Spirit. So again, what does this have to do with climbing <laughs> and Jorgensen and Tommy Caldwell? <clears throat> well, Paul's therefores and thuses and butfors are really, if you remember what uh, Kevin Jorgensen said there, are like these series of microscopic handholds that, you know, we grab onto. They're not significant. They're not big theological words. They're little tiny Greek words. But they're all part of this crux move. If you read chapter 4, the end here, like I read, and 5, you know, which is like, wives, obey your husbands. And 6, slaves, obey your masters. And like, it's like, oh my gosh, this is not good stuff. This is not stuff you put on a little poster in the dentist's office. Like, this is not, this is not stuff you talk to your non-Christian friends about. This is stuff that you might talk about in the kitchen, like I said, but it's not stuff you just... And they're like, it's really, it's like this really difficult crux move traverse across this really, oh, it's tough. Like, I don't want to read this stuff. And, and it's, yeah, it, if we continue through it, only as we continue through it, do we get to this summit moment, just to continue the metaphor a little bit, where Paul says in Ephesians 5.8, which I didn't read, Paul says this about us. You were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light and find out what pleases the Lord. Only as we go through that stuff with all the therefores and the butfors and the thuses do we get to that beautiful invitation. It's a beautiful image, right? To be a child of light. Like who in the room doesn't want to live as a child of light or doesn't want your children to live as children of light? Um, it's exciting, except here's the, here's the problem. Most of us, I would say probably all of us, if we're honest with ourselves and with each other, would probably say, me? A child of light? I mean, seriously. I'm filled with darkness. I'm cynical. I'm anxious. I'm angry. I mean, children being separated from parents at the border wall, I'm just pissed off right now, Jack. And Paul says, don't let, don't, in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on that. I did Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. I'm just pissed. And don't let the how many, how many times have you failed in that verse alone in this section? I'm just raising my hand. I have. We, and we seem to live in like an ever-darkening world. And it seems sometimes like this is just pie in the sky, by and by. Thank you, Paul, very much. And I'll just say it, it will be unless we, we heed the wisdom of people like Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen and, and ascend and climb slowly and deliberately. See how slowly... Tommy Caldwell's climbing just slowly, slowly. And you climb into your identity along the surface and the contour of this particular teaching and, and follow it and allow God, use those handholds, the therefores, the thuses, the buts, all those things. God provides those for us as a way to, to get to this sense of who we are, children of light, living as children of light. So having said that, at the very end of the section, though we didn't read this, uh, in a condensed way, I just kind of discovered this this week. Paul actually provides the outline for us this morning. In Ephesians 5.14, it's thought to be like a, a hymn they would sing in the church. And it's set out in that way in your Bibles as like a little three-line poem. And, and that's a little 
kind of hint that they were probably singing this. So Paul, three, three lines, one verse, where Paul says, wake up sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. And actually, that's a summary of all of what comes before. It's really beautiful. So we're going to use that as our outline this morning. Um, and we might not get past wake up sleeper. Actually, I'm just going to tell you right now. We're going to just look at the first thing, wake up sleeper. I've got stuff from arise for the dead and Christ will shine upon you, but we're going to go deep into this invitation to wake up, okay? Which is, we're going to find it really in verses uh, 17 to 21 of chapter 4. So I want to do a deep dive in that section. And then I've got lots of notes if you're interested on the rest of it sometime if you'd like to hear. So, so verse 17 uh, Paul says in chapter 4, so I tell you, which is actually Greek, therefore. So therefore, that's a little handhold, no longer live as the Gentiles do. Real quick note, the Ephesian church is a Gentile church. These are uh, pagan converts to Christianity. They're not Jewish converts. And so what I think Paul is saying is he's not contrasting them as good Christians. He grew up in the church, you know, good Christian people to these kind of bad Gentile people out there, these sort of heathens. No, you know, it's not us, them. It's more like, a, it's more like an us, us. It's like more like a mirror. It's like Paul's saying, don't forget the life you've come out of. The life, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget the world that you came out of. Which is why he says in verse 14, wake up. In other words, do you see the life you come from, the world you've come from? Uh, don't forget that. You are Gentiles, you need to realize the world in which you were formed in and the world that you came out of into Christianity. And that, that, that Christianity is, it has to be radically transformative for it to be authentic. You have to make a radical break with your old way of life and the old world and your old surrounding culture. Christianity, Paul's saying, is a radical thing. Wake up. In other words, it's not just an invitation to uh, get up and start a new day as if it's Groundhog Day. Remember that movie with Bill Murray? Like, every day is the same. Yesterday, the same as today. Tomorrow, like today. Maybe a little better, but just basically the same. He's saying, no, approaching Christianity that way is like approaching it like a vitamin supplement. Just take a little bit, you're going to get a little better. That's not Christianity, friends. And if that's kind of how you approach Christianity, a little church, a little Bible, a little prayer, I'm a little better. Paul's saying, no. Instead, I've heard Christianity actually described as surgery where you go under the knife, you're anesthetized, it's comprehensive, it's radical, there's something in you that needs to completely change. This is why Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. Something radical has happened to you. And, you, and Paul says, wake up to that. There's been a radical change in your life, and, and so you need to wake up to that radical change. It's comprehensive. And so the waking up involves two things. Uh, I think Paul's inviting us to wake up to who we were, our old self, and then to who we are, our new self, okay? Richard Rohr talks about this as true self, false self. So I hang out with some of these guys a lot. We talk about true self, false self stuff all the time. Here's your true self, false self sermon. So first, I want to talk about who we were, according to Paul. And there's lots of ways he describes this. In verses 17 to 19, he says that uh, the Gentiles were, and you were, darkened in their understanding— uh, separated from the life of God, and ignorant and had hard hearts. Okay. So many of us, we tend to get lost right here in these details. Like, what does Paul mean by darkened and understanding? I mean, and then there's this word sensuality and impurity. There seems to be implied sexual undertones here, and we love to talk about sex, especially when it involves other people's sex. Um, oh, but there's greed. Verse 19, we love money, but don't talk about money in the church, Jack. 
Don't talk about it, okay? Just pass the plates. Don't say anything else. But here's the thing. The key to it all is, is not to focus on those details. Those are weeds. That's like losing the forest through the trees. Um, in verse 19, here's the idea that Paul's giving us. In all those various details, Paul says this one thing, that the Gentiles had given themselves over. Do you see that phrase in here? Here's the verse. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they were full of greed. But given themselves over is like the, the hinge point for that entire section of, of ideas. So the Greek word for that phrase is this word paradidomai. And it literally means to capitulate, to, hand, to give your life to another, to, to, hand, to, to give your power over to somebody else, to use you, Okay. So you're letting money use you, you're letting sensuality use you, indulgence use you. So the key to the whole thing is, uh, which I want to take some time to talk about this, is this. Um, back in the 20th century, what, what giving yourself over looks like uh, was really described by this German philosopher named Martin Heidegger. How many of you guys know who Martin Heidegger is? So kind of post-World War II, he had an amazing insight in this matter. He had this, this word, a philosophical word. This is your party word for the day, Gerwurfenheit. Don't you love, like, German words? Like, Gorwarfenheit. Try that out at a party this summer. Just say Gorwarfenheit and see what happens. But it means, it means thrownness, at least to Heidegger. And it's a sense in which we're not making progress in the world and that we're not getting anywhere and that we're not accomplishing anything, that the world is, we're just thrown into the world. Our lives are just thrown. You can imagine, like, a, a ball of yarn just thrown out and tangled, Right? Um, and so Heidegger had come up with this idea after World War II when he saw the horrors that he witnessed, the Holocaust, nuclear bombings, refugee crises, like nothing we've seen. And, and he had this profound sense the world is just a tangled mess. It's irreparably broken. And so the key to this at an interpersonal level is that once we're affected by this, like we're all affected by it, Heidegger was, I think we're being affected by it profoundly today when you talk about race, you talk about immigration, talk about all kinds of stuff, leadership. When you're affected by Gorfenheit, it's like nightfall comes over. The deeper you sink into it, the more darker and inaccessible your world, your personal world becomes. You become alienated from yourself, depressed, alienated from other people. And Heidegger would go so far to say, as you no longer feel at home in the world. You, you experience what the Bible calls exile, okay, interpersonally. And in such confusing moments, we can and we often do ignore this mood by either kind of going into our everydayness, like our like non-reflective modes of existence, just getting busy with your work, absorbing yourself in your work, or recreation, or just sleeping and eating and sleeping and eating, just absorbing yourself in that world. Or we can try and numb it with toxins and chemicals. This is really the root of addiction. Alcohol, drugs, pornography, entertainment are really a, a way of kind of dealing with Gorfenheit at a root level. And so Heidegger suggests that our everydayness as well, our, as, well as our escapism are like these subterranean and subconscious ways of dealing with disorientation that's brought on by Gorfanite, thrownness. Which is what Paul is saying in in Ephesians 4, as he picks up on this idea of their darkened understanding, their futile thinking of the Ephesians. He says that their paradidomai, their Gorfanite, their thrownness, in that they're filling themselves up. Listen to this. They've given themselves over to sensuality. They're filling themselves up with it. They're indulging, that's a filling up word with impurity. They're full of greed. They're filling themselves up with greediness. That's all it is. They're dealing with Gorfanite, with thrownness. Um, all which is to say this, that Paul is, is saying the mark of our lives apart from Christ, if you've ever experienced this, 
because we experience it even in relationship with Christ, we're separated from Christ at times, is a sense that we're doing an awful lot of work and an awful lot of things and not getting anywhere. We're not accomplishing anything. We are Bill Murray <laughs> in Groundhog Day. Like, we've given ourselves, so we give ourselves over. We indulge. We fill ourselves up with things. We say things like this. Well, maybe the futility I experience will not be so bad if I do this. I'm experiencing futility in my work. Maybe I'll just give myself over to a little bit of pornography. Or maybe I'll just give myself over a little bit of whiskey or rum. It's not going to be so bad if I do that. We're given over to things. There are certain things we have to do. We're given over to work. We're given over to relationships. We have to have relationships. I have, we're given over to the need for success. We have to have stuff. If I just get that new device, maybe it won't be so bad. We realize I have to have financial security. I have to have somebody in my arm. I have to have good looks. I have to have success. I have to feel important. I have to have these things to deal with the world I'm in. I'm given over to them. And yet the more I give myself over to these things, there's a continual lust for more, isn't there? The, this glorifonite is just like this, ah, oh, it just sucks you in. I, the more I experience it, the less satisfied I am, the more thrown I am. I mean, do you see this? This is why Paul says in Romans 7, this amazing thing he says, who will rescue me, this wretched man that I am? Because he, he's experiencing the same thing. As the, as the founder of the, the church as we know it, He's experiencing thrownness. I, who's going to rescue me? Now, a lot of people, and I've done this, have spent a lot of years in reflection on this issue, thousands of dollars in therapy, and they go like this. Yeah, I'm not satisfied. I'm given over. There's things that drive me. I'm thrown. <laughs> and yet I have no idea what to do next. So they're stuck in verse 19 with their old self. They have no vision for a new self. But thank God Paul doesn't stop at verse 19. Like, that's not the end of this story for us. There, that's where we have to stop apart from faith. We have to, apart from God, we have to stop there. We have only an old self, a self that's destructive. And we're seeing that self on full display. I've already kind of hinted at this at the highest levels of leadership in our government. We're seeing it in religious circles, conservative religious circles, as, as leaders self-implode within great, great pastors. Great, we're seeing it in families right now. Gorfenheit, thrownness, everywhere. doesn't matter. You're not immune to this. But thank God that in Christ, God does offer us a new self, okay? There is good news for us, an identity that's not thrown. So you don't have to despair, okay? You don't have to despair your leaders. You don't have to despair your own experience, okay? So you move on. Verse 20, this is where Paul says, however. <laughs> that's a conjunction. That's a little handhold. You know, you just got to move, move across that wall. That's not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ, Literally, in the Greek, it says, when you heard Christ. There's no about in there. When you heard Christ. We'll get to that. And we're taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. This is like the key move of the entire, these three or four verses we're looking at. Because you see, the experts in the ancient Greek say the word learn. To learn is a verb that's always and only and ever used with an object, like a book or a body of teaching. Nobody would ever, 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 I mean, Paul is like smoking something here. In ancient antiquity, learn a person. You don't learn people. And yet Paul says, you learned Jesus. You heard Jesus. So you're not in verse 17, 18, or 19 anymore. You're not darkened. You're not ignorant. You're not thrown. That's not you. Your identity, your true self is rooted in verse 20. You learned Christ. You were taught in him in accordance with Jesus. That's your new self. That's your new identity. As Paul says somewhere else, your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're hidden with Christ. That's who you are. Now, 
I'm often saying, along with these sort of conjunctions, that prepositions in the Bible are really important as well. So you could kind of add this to the, the metaphor, like little handholds, in and with. Remember, in this verse, uh, Paul uses in and with. You're, you're, you're in Christ. You're with Jesus. Those are so important to understand the story of God when you see prepositions. You, we often overlook them. We pass right by them. We're looking for the big theological words. Again, conjunctions and prepositions. If that's all you ever knew in Greek, that's the most important thing. So in verse 20, Paul says, literally, you heard Christ. You were taught in him with the truth that is in Jesus. Those are the most important words. In him with the truth in Jesus. It, I mean, such a pregnant verse. They're, those prepositions are the most important thing. So first of all, don't let anybody, 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 not me or anybody else, ever put this over on you that Christianity is just merely intellectual assent to doctrine or dogma. It's, it's way more than that. Don't ever reduce Christianity. Don't reduce yourself to that. It's more than information. It's more than ethics. It has a lot, Christianity has a lot of ethics in it, a lot of good ethics. It's not an ethic, okay? It has a lot of doctrine. It's not a doctrine. Um, it's more than merely that. It's not less than that. It starts there often. So like there's systematic theology and there's Bible study. We have our Wednesday women's Bible study during the school year. It's really important. Elizabeth and I are attempting to take our kids through a catechism this year. That's the way, the basics of instruction, the way you learn faith, instruction. But that's not the essence. Don't tell your kids that's the essence of Christianity when you do a catechism with them. Not the essence. Don't settle for that. Here's the essence. The essence of Christianity, the essence of Christian identity that's in opposition to throneness, Gorofenheit, is that Christianity is life and identity and meaning rooted in Jesus. That's it. Christianity is in Jesus. That's just the way you say it. So that Paul says the truth that is in Jesus. And the reason that's so important for our conversation around identity and our true selves is this. I hear people say this all the time as a pastor, and I've got some buddies who are non-Christians, non-believers, that I ride bikes with and climb with and stuff. And they'll say these things to me. Hey, I'm a Christian. Yeah, yeah, I'm okay with that stuff. Uh, I don't know, though, if Jesus was actually raised from the dead. And I don't know if he said the things the Bible says he said. I mean, those are written by people. Like, they had kind of, like, very narrow worldviews. They didn't even leave kind of their little plot of land they were on. How could they know about the stuff we know? And I don't know about miracles and the cross. Like, I, and I don't, honestly, I don't care about this stuff because those things aren't actually important to me. They happened thousands of years ago. They don't change my life. What I understand and find important is that, this is not me speaking, this is friends. In the Bible, I find forgiveness. And I find renewal and I find inspiration. I'm motivated to work for reconciliation. And um, I'm inspired to work for the spread of kindness and goodwill. Like Jesus was like a woke rabbi, man. And I just, meek and mild, man. That's Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. But, you know, whether he literally said what he said, you know, the red letters, not important. Whether he literally did what he did, the miracles, not that big of a deal. I mean, if he was raised from the dead physically, or if that was just an idea, resurrection, to inspire, not critical because not important to me and how I'm living. And I just say, yes, they are. (laughs) They're absolutely, utterly important to not only you, but also to Christianity. Because see, when a person talks like that, if you've ever talked like that, you've actually turned Christianity into another religion completely. It's not Christianity anymore. It's not just a different version of Christianity. It's a completely different religion. And here's what I mean by that. 
uh, you know, you don't have just a, a more conservative version and your friends have a more progressive version, completely different version. Every other version, every other religion I'm, I'm saying, it doesn't matter the, whether the founder lived or died or not. It's really not about them. It's about you. So take Islam, for example. Like, it doesn't matter, really, if Muhammad did all the miracles. Like, if he fled from Mecca to Medina and was in a cave and there's a spider with a web that protected him. Like, read the Quran sometimes. It doesn't really matter if those things happened. They would not change the essence of Islam because the essence of Islam is about the five pillars and reaching paradise and your eternal security. Take Buddhism. It doesn't matter whether Buddha lived or died or not. It doesn't matter whether he did the miracles that have been said to have been attributed to him. Because it's, it's not about Buddha. It's about the Eightfold Path. It's about enlightenment. It's about you and your personal peace, isn't it? And so in both respects, as, and in other religious traditions as well, you're the center of the story. You're the utter center of the story. The religion is really about self-improvement, self-realization, just save, get, saving yourself. In, in, in every other religion, it says, here's the theory, here's the concepts, here's the teaching. Obey, you're accepted. You know, follow the rules, you're saved right? Christianity is totally different. It's radically, completely different. In other words, there were certain things that happened in history, is what Christianity is claiming. God became a human being. John 1.14, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And that's not just poetic flourish, friends. Jesus lived on planet earth, (laughs) like you and I are living on planet earth right now. That's what we're saying in the Nicene Creed. He lived in a neighborhood, and not just any neighborhood, in a Palestinian neighborhood, okay, as a refugee. He became a child. He ate certain foods. He wore clothing. He spoke a particular language, or probably languages. <laughs> he had a family, and he was estranged from his family at times. I'd go, I've gone so far as to say he had a zip code, just like you do, and that matters. He had property value. He had all those things, and that matters because it makes Christianity Christianity, which is different than Buddhism, different than Islam, different than Sikhism, whatever all that stuff is. When Paul says, you heard Christ, you were taught in him with the truth that is in Jesus. Paul is saying we are followers of Christ. And we're we're following a man who lived and died, was able to die and be killed on the cross because he was physically present in the world. That's the only way he died. Couldn't have been dead on a cross if he was just like a hologram, you know? And he died because he first lived. He was raised because he died. You don't get raised from the dead if you haven't died first. He did that. These are historical events that we believe in. Uh, And here's the crazy part of the gospel. If you really drill down into this really deeply, learn the truth that is in Jesus. We're told that our sins, your sins and my sins, our failures, our disappointment, our cynicism, our anger, Sometimes we get angry at people, and that's sinful. It's not sinful just to be angry, but what Paul talks about, in your anger, do not sin. He's like, just don't lash out at people just to destroy them. Don't destroy them. We've done that. Paul says, in your sin, God dealt with that because of Jesus. Your life and my life are now hidden with Christ in God. Because of Jesus, all of that's dealt with. Because of a man who lived, died, rose, ate, slept, you know, had family. We're, we're, we are more loved, more accepted, and more received than we could ever possibly imagine. There's, no, like, there's nothing we have to do anymore to, to get to God, like to save ourselves, to earn our way. There's no five-fold path for us, no eight-fold, whatever. 
It's been done. It's a historical fact. Jesus' death on the cross, resurrection from the grave, his atonement for our sin are not these metaphysical, mystical, mysterious stories that we tell ourselves to feel better. The Bible says they happened. They are reality. They're done. And that our lives, our, root, our identity, our new selves are rooted in that. You learn the truth that it was in Jesus. That's your life if you follow Christ. Uh, Richard Rohr has this little podcast that Dustin turned me on to called Homilies. And they're like five to 12 minute talks, homilies. You know, I was a little church in Santa Fe. And um, so I listened to this one about true self and false self recently. And he asked this question. And he says, who are you? Like, do you know who you really are? Did you listen to this one? Probably, you've listened to them all. So anyway, I listened to this. I loved it. Real simple. He asked this question. Who are you from the moment of your conception? Who were you from the moment of your conception? Psalm 139. God says, you are beautifully and wonderfully made. He knew you in your mother's womb. Who were you then? Think about that. He says, who were you before you were born? He says that the Eastern religions have this way of saying it. Who were you before you had a face? Think about that. I mean, when you were just an embryo, who were you? Uh, Who were you before you were black, white, Asian, or Latino? Those are labels we put on each other, friends. Who were you? Who were you before you were an American? That's not your identity. Uh, Who were you before you were heterosexual or homosexual? Who were you before you were a computer programmer or teacher or parent? Who were you before you were cynical or clinically depressed or anxious or overweight or lonely? Who were you? Because there is somebody in there right now. And that's a real person that God loves and that God chose to live for, die for, rise from the dead for. Um, Who are you today? That's the question Roar pushes us. And then he says, most people don't have a clue who they are. And that's the reason we're so confused and the reason we're so bitter and the reason we don't know how to love. We don't know who we are. Do you know who you really are? Have you thought about it? And the Bible says here in Ephesians 4 as well as elsewhere, your true self is hidden with God in Christ. You, You are defined by Jesus. You go down into that and you begin to discover beauty and hope and love. Um, and when we know that, our response can be nothing short of gratitude. Um, it's like that old hymn that Isaac Watts wrote, When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross. I think he began to discover who he was. He says, when I survey the wondrous cross, which the, on the which the Prince of Glory died, he's seeing the picture of Jesus. Listen to what he said. My richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. I forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. He's looking at Jesus and saying, my, I am made in Christ's image. <laughs> that is what Paul tells us and reminds us that we learned, we heard Christ, we were taught in him, in Jesus, okay? And it says we look at his life and his love and respond with love, with gratitude, with worship, um, that our lives become this, this opportunity to live in response to him and offer those things to the world around us. When we live from that place, from what he's done and how he's shaped our lives, in him, out of him, that's when the gospel begins to come alive. Like you, you wonder, how does the gospel change the world in which we live? It's by living from the truth that you are in Christ. And, and then reconciliation, healing, restoration become actual realities, possibilities in our world. 
So that's what Paul's saying here. That's what the truth is in Jesus. The truth is that we're, we're loved, and, and Paul's inviting us to wake up to that. Um, and in our wokeness, <laughs> like live, live out of that. Live out of our true identity, out of our true calling. And so that's all I want to say this morning. Um, like I said, I have all kinds of other stuff on arising and letting Christ shine, verses 22, 23, 24 but I'm going to leave it for another day, and I want to worship God with you. Um, verse 25, Paul says, put off falsehood. Speak truthfully. In your anger, don't sin. I mean, how many of you have failed at that right now? You're failing at that. Um, in verse 29, he says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is helpful for building others up. Try that on Amazon, right? When you're just belittled for not being enough. Um, when your kids start putting, pushing your buttons, when you, when you just bla- put your spouse on blast because they didn't do something you expected them to do. Paul says, be kind, compassionate, forgiving. I mean, he's just heaping it on us. And yet if I remember that metaphor, these tiny handholds, the thuses and howevers, chapter 5, verse 1, follow God's example. Therefore, follow God's example as dearly loved children. Walk in the way of love. Uh, he's inviting us to grip Christ grip the life of Christ, the hours of us is each of them unique, um, but each of them really the same. Uh, live in Jesus, my friends. Live out of Christ and allow that life to, to shape your whole life, your whole life. Your words, your attitudes, your anxieties, your hopes, all those things. So you find your life hidden with God in Christ, my friends. That's our prayer, my prayer for us. Um, Let's take a moment to pray. God, we thank you for uh, the invitation to walk in the way of love. Uh, We confess this morning that can feel um, like like a really heavy backpack, especially when you load it up with stuff like not being angry, being compassionate, being kind with our words. Um, We thank you God, that as we reframe that uh, with the life of Christ, who said to us, cast your burdens upon me, my yoke is easy, my burden light, when we release all that to him and just receive his life, that there's freedom for us, God, to live as dearly loved children, to live as children of light, free from the burdens and expectations that we have of ourselves. God, you don't have expectations of us. You have dreams and hopes for us. And really, you just want us to remember who we are, created in you, for you, even as you. Help us see that, God, even in our brokenness. uh, Would you reframe, reshape the way we see ourselves? I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.